language as a system is something that's embedded in social interaction and embedded in embodied interaction. So we're always learning language from childhood onward in the context of interacting with others, trying to manage their attention, trying to get them to do what we'd like them to. It's never just a question of, I'm going to communicate what's true and false. It's always a social behavior. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Amalia Skilton discusses her research in the Tacuna language in Peru and what it can tell us about the nature of human communication. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to speak with Amalia Skilton today. Dr. Skilton is a Klarman postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Linguistics here at Cornell. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Amalia. I'm so glad to be here. So before we dive into the exciting work that you do as part of your um, fellowship here at Cornell, can you talk a little bit about your background and your path with languages? So um, I've always been very interested in language learning. And um, I grew up in an environment for many reasons where I was very encouraged to learn classical languages. Mm. So um, I studied Latin and Greek beginning in um, actually junior high school. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, other things I did not learn as a result, but I did <laughs> right. learn Latin and Greek at a young age. Um, so I was able to study those starting really young. Um, and then in um, after graduating from high school and starting college, I decided to branch out and um, study some modern languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and the university in my hometown happened to have a critical language institute that was free. Oh, wow. So I did um, a semester of Persian. Huh. And then um, after starting college, I was bitten by the linguistics bug, as so many people who are into language learning are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and, um, I was an undergraduate at Yale. And Claire Bowen, who um, I suspect is probably involved in some of the, in the Middle East commonly taught languages programs mm-hmm. here. And Claire Bowen recruited me to become a field linguist, and the rest is history. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, since then, um, I've done field work with speakers of two languages. Mainki, um, which is a Tucanoan language spoken in Peru that has really very few speakers now. It's very endangered. Hmm. About 100 speakers. Um, and with speakers of Tucuna, which is a language isolate that's spoken in Brazil, Colombia, and Peru, has about 60,000 speakers, depending who you ask. Okay. Wow. So what got you into those particular languages? Um, in a way, it was sort of chance. So I had been taking fieldwork-related classes as an undergraduate in linguistics. Mm-hmm. And um, Clara Bowen encouraged me to try doing field work. Um, and I happened to already speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, so Latin America was kind of the natural choice. Sure. And um, the first language that I worked on, my hinky, um, my the person who ended up being my doctoral advisor, Love Michael at Berkeley, um, had set up a field school where he was bringing two or three students a year, including undergraduates, um, to do field work with speakers of that language. Mm in um, Peruvian Amazonia. Mm-hmm. So I went, um, I was part of that field school um, between my junior and senior years of college, actually. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. And then after graduating from college, 
um, I received one of these undergraduate travel fellowships mm, cool. that's paid for me to spend 10 months um, doing field work in Peruvian nice. Amazonia with that language. Yeah. Which, you know, doing 10 months of field work mostly alone at like 21, definitely <laughs> a character developing experience. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I left speaking Spanish very well. Um, speaking Mankiki pretty well, although that's now gotten very rusty since I haven't worked with that language in a long time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with a lot of preparation for doing more field work in graduate school, which that sure. was the next, next step, step on the journey. Yeah, nice. Well, so you are part of the second cohort of Klarman Fellows in the College of Arts and Sciences here at Cornell. These fellowships provide postdoctoral opportunities to early career scholars in any discipline in the college. What research are you engaged in during your three years here? I'm working on a, pro- a series of projects that are about joint attention. Um, in Takuna children and Takuna-speaking adults. And you ask, what is joint attention? Mm -hmm. Um, Joint attention is when one person does something to manage or direct another person's attention toward a third person or object. Mm -hmm. So joint attention is always um, at least a triangle where we have the person who's directing attention, the person whose attention is being managed, and the referent, the person or object that they're attending to. And what I really find fascinating about joint attention is that it is the infrastructure for the rest of social interaction mm-hmm. and the rest of language. So if we want to um, assign a name to an object, share its name with someone, teach its name to a child, we need to first establish joint attention on that object. We want to request or exchange objects, we also need to first direct attention to them. Mm-hmm. So it's a really basic kind of social action. Um, Another thing about joint attention that's really fascinating to me is that it is something that is unique to humans. Hmm. So other primates have different types of communication, um, you know, calls, Mm -hmm. gestures, Mm -hmm. etc. But arguably there are no other primates or, in fact, any other animals that don't co-evolve with humans um, that engage in joint attention. Hmm. So, of course, an an animal can attend to something because intrinsically attention-getting. Sure. Um, but they don't direct one another's attention in the way that people do. And it's really closely enmeshed with language when we're looking at kids mm-hmm. because kids first be- always first begin to develop joint attention skills, typically developing kids, first begin to develop joint attention, begin trying to manage their caregiver's attention, begin looking where the caregiver is pointing and so on, and then begin producing words. Mm-hmm. So there's a very close link between, for example, starting to point and starting to produce words for mm-hmm. young children. That's fascinating. So you are looking at um, similarities and differences in across cultures, right? Absolutely. You actually just came back from fieldwork in Peru. So what are some of the things that you specifically are researching abroad? And what are you finding in terms of similarities or differences across cultures? Absolutely. Uh, so I just came back from spending some time collecting data in Peru with Takuna kids who are um, five to seven years old. But most of my work in this project is about much younger children mm-hmm. who are um, acquiring, t- who are learning Takuna as their first language and who are aged between one and four years. Mm-hmm. Those are, these are really young children, yeah. and they don't know a lot of words. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I've found that's really interestingly similar to English, Mandarin, Spanish, many um, global languages, is that very young children, like one and two years old, don't know a lot of function words. Like little kids in English, for example, don't really say the. Sure. Um, But what they do know is they do know demonstrative words like this and that and here Mm -hmm. and there, 
those are some of the very first function words to appear um, when kids begin speaking. And that's also the case, that's the case in Jakuna, and that's also the case in other languages around the world that have been studied from English, like Japanese. Mm -hmm. And I argue that that's because um, the use of those words is driven by a need to establish joint attention with others, with caregivers, and those words are our main verbal device for establishing joint attention, words like this, that, and here, there. Please tell us more about Takuna and its speakers. Um, So Takuna is a language isolate, meaning it's not related to any other documented language. Um, It's spoken by around 60,000 people who belong to the indigenous Takuna um, people, ethnic group, in Peru, uh, Colombia, and Brazil. In Colombia, kids are not really learning Takuna. It's pretty endangered. Um, In Peru and Brazil, you know, everyone in those communities speaks it, and most people don't have a great command of Spanish or Mm -hmm. Portuguese. Mm Um, especially children usually don't speak Spanish at all, um, and a lot of younger moms, caregivers don't really speak it either. So it's essential for me to be able to speak the language in order to do this work. And um, one thing that's really unique about the language, besides the system of words like this, that, and here, there, which I'm very interested in, um, one thing that's unique about it is that it has a very complex system of tone. Mm-hmm. So it has a, it's very comparable to like Cantonese or Taiwanese mm-hmm. in terms of its tone system, um, even though it's spoken in a totally different world region. Yeah, that's interesting. So in your research, have you also worked with um, American children? I actually have not. Oh, okay. So I certainly do lots of um, research that involves comparing children from different language groups, mm-hmm. um, whether that's U.S. children or children acquiring Turkish, mm-hmm. Mandarin other languages. Um, but I rely on the literature for those comparisons. Got it. So I've actually never recorded okay. American children. Okay. And I don't have any kids. So <laughs> my experience of children is specifically uh, a little Takuna babies. That's awesome. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about what you have found and how that does compare to, say, children in the U.S. or, or other yeah. children that have been discussed in the literature? Absolutely. So I had a paper that recently came out in Journal of Child Language that um, describes how Takuna kids learn words like this, that, and here, there. And um, there are really uh, two main takeaways from that paper. The first one is that Takuna kids, just like kids acquiring English, Spanish, Mandarin, Turkish, really almost every language where this has been studied, produce words like this, that, and here, there super early. Mm -hmm. So as I was saying, you know, at one and two, you don't have a lot of words, period. You certainly don't have a lot of function words, but kids that age, Takuna kids and U.S. kids, um, are producing those words already. Mm-hmm. So there's something about them that makes them special and makes them come out early. Um, the other finding that the paper describes is a little bit more complex. So in Takuna, there is a, a, um, a word like this and that, a demonstrative word, mm-hmm. um, which specifically picks out something that's near the listener, near the addressee. Um, and this is similar to some uses of there in English. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you were, um, for example, like looking for an injury on my foot. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say, you know, it hurts um, on one place, but not in another place. I could say something like, it hurts here, but not there. Mm-hmm. You know, even though there is on my own body, it's not far away. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use there because the referent is near the addressee. So Takuna has a demonstrative that just does that. It just says, mm-hmm. I'm speaking about something that's near you. Mm-hmm. So we have this near me. We have this between us. That's another one. And then we have that far away from me. And that near you. So that near you and that far from you are two different words. And what I found in this paper is that Takuna kids are really good at that far from me, the one that relates the object to the speaker. Mm -hmm. They're good at that from like 18 months. Hmm. 
they're producing that word like champs um, beginning at one year, two years. They're not producing that near you at all until three years. Hmm. Even though that near you and this near me and that far from me, those three are all pretty much equal in frequency when adults are speaking to children. Hmm. So adults, so kids are hearing that near, that far from me and that near you equally often, but they're only actually using that far from me. They're only using the one that relates the object to the speaker. Now, as anyone who's ever taken care of kids or worked with them knows, <laughs> little children are total egomaniacs. Yep. <laughs> and so the, um, the reason that I suggest for that is that, um, you know, children have a hard time understanding others' perspectives, yeah. including their perspectives on objects in space. Sure. So um, the argument that I make is that kids are better at that far, f- at that far from me than at that near you um, because they have trouble uh, construing the object from the reference from the listener's point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is interesting because there have not really been any other languages studied um, for this type of phenomenon that have a term that means that near you. So there's like a pretty good number of languages worldwide that have terms like this. Okay. They're not uncommon um, that have a word that means that near you that's distinct from that far from me. Um, but um, none of them have been studied from the point of view of um, early language acquisition. Mm, okay. So this is the really the first finding about that, but it's coherent with other findings about, you know, children having a difficult time understanding objects from other people's perspectives. Mm-hmm. Well, so you have your work cut out for you then. You mm-hmm. have to... Uh, Acquire different languages yourself so you can do research in all these other languages yes. as well. <laughs> um, of course, second language acquisition and first language acquisition are very different. Well, um, right. But yes, there's definitely <laughs> lots of work to be done, um, especially, you know, in the um, in the research that I've done so far in my Clarman Fellowship, I've only been looking at the production of the speech of kids aged one to four. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like, it's not as though you turn five and all of a sudden everything mm-hmm. you produce is like totally adult-like and normal. Sure. Um, so I've actually just been collecting data this summer with kids who are five to seven years old. Hmm. It's actually the same kids that were in the first study, oh, cool. uh-huh. yeah. but COVID happened. Uh, right. So they are all much farther <laughs> along now in their language development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So once you're actually um, five to seven years old, you're going to know all of these different terms like this, that, here, there, mm-hmm. et cetera. But you're probably not going to use them in a way that's just like adults. So one goal of that work with my newer data set with the older kids will be to find out how the kids who are that age, how is their use of those terms different from adults mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar or aware of any research that actually has been done in the um, second language context or is most of the research that currently exists confined to a first language acquisition? Um, you know, I'm not a second language acquisition researcher, but it is my understanding that um, There is some research on the acquisition of those terms by second language learners, mostly of, like, European languages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, it, it, that's, I would predict that the acquisition of those terms in a second language will really depend on how similar the system mm-hmm. is to your first sure. language. So, like, English just really has two words in this mm-hmm. set, this, this and that, you know, this more or less equivalent to here and that more or less equivalent to there. So we're not working with a large inventory. Takuna has six words mm-hmm. that belong to that belong to this set. So there's going to be a really different mapping between, you know, a first sure. language and a second language when you have that much of a differential. And it's actually not that unusual for a language to have like four or more demonstrative mm-hmm. terms. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, I'd be in, I would imagine there would be an effect of what your um, first language was and what the second language sure. was in terms of the size of the inventory. Well, so it should be 
less complex for the Tacuna speakers to acquire English than or Spanish right? because they're coming, yeah. From a much more complex system. Perhaps. Um, But the the fact that the system is more complex doesn't just mean there's going to be a very simple, like, two-to-one kind Mm, of mapping. Sure. So I'm actually doing virtual field work now. Oh, wow. With a Takuna speaker that lives in Lima. Uh Uh-huh. And every time that we come across one of these these terms, especially the ones that mean here and there, um, we have to spend a few minutes debating, would it be better to translate this word as Akirai? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... The, the mapping the mapping is always going to be complex, and you know the space the semantic space will never be carved up exactly the same. Sure. We're in exactly one to one mapping in yeah. any two languages. Well, so softball. Uh, what are some deeper implications for human communication that might come out of your work? I love this question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of the ones that's most important to me is that language as a system is something that's embedded in social interaction. But and embodied embedded in embodied interaction. Mm-hmm. So we're always learning language from childhood onward in the context of interacting with others, trying to manage their attention, trying to get them to do what we'd like them to. Mm-hmm. It's never just a question of I'm going to communicate what's true and false. It's always a social behavior. And the other um, thing, the other part of that is that we're always engaged in embodied interactions. You know, whenever we're speaking face to face, we're always Wearing our bodies mm-hmm. and, and engaging with the physical surroundings. And that's why terms like this are so frequent and so important in language acquisition and language use. Um, another thing that I would say about the implications of my work for human communication in general is we need to bear in mind that human communication is always multimodal. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is we're always communicating in the visual mode as well as in the auditory mode. Yeah. Even if we're using a spoken language and not a sign language, our visual behavior always makes a difference. If I say here and point at one thing, it, I'm referring to something different than if I say here and point at another. My gestures, my gaze, what I, the expressions I show on my face are always going to impact how people understand what I'm saying. So even though we think of signed language as being something that's purely visual and then spoken language as being purely mm-hmm. um, auditory, in fact, language is always multimodal. There's yeah. always something happening in spoken communication that isn't speech, and there's always something happening probably in sign communication that, is, that isn't sign. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fascinating. Wonderful. So you already referenced um, one paper that recently came out, but where can our listeners find out more about your work in general? You can go to my website at blogs.cornell.edu slash Wonderful. Well, people, here you have it. Go check out Amalia's blog and read all about her research and the wonderful work that she's engaged in. And Amalia, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language you speak, love, are learning, want to learn, that makes you laugh. Let's hear it. Um, so my word of choice is a shakuna verb that means to be totally fed up with something. Ooh. <laughs> it is watum. <laughs> But the subject of this verb is the thing you're fed up with. Huh. So, you know, it bores me. I'm done with it, mm-hmm. etc. Not that this podcast bores me, but I just feel that the sound of this word really evokes what it means. Can you say it one more time? Beautiful. <laughs> that is wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Amalia. Thank you. Next week, we will speak with Stacy Margarita Johnson about problem-based models for language and culture instruction. 
Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.